Hey, it's David Cherry and welcome to the show. This podcast helps you stay in tune with the new energy around community and brand building, sharing conversations with some of my friends and my favorite online founders and creators about how they built a brand and community around what they do. And as always, if you want to reach out, just look me up in the show notes, check out the guest links. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, okay, so I wanted to preface this episode by giving a bit more of an introduction on my guest because I didn't give her the best opportunity to do it right when we kicked off the conversation. Today, I'm very excited to be speaking with Zoe Skamen. She is a strategist who has worked with huge companies like Adidas, uh, like Droga5. She was the global head of strategy for the Ridley Scott Creative Group. She works with celebrities. She works with uh, pro athletes all on the idea of how do you build a strategy based on the new way of sort of monetizing attention. And so while it used to always be about advertising and influencers were all about, you know, pairing up with brands for advertising, what's happening now is a huge shift to the creator economy. And that's things like Patreon and other uh, services like Substack that allow people who have an audience to monetize directly with their fans. And what first got me interested in Zoe's work was this talk that she gave, which is linked in the show notes, about how business model innovation is kind of the frontier for brands and for individual creators in terms of how they build community and how they build uh, their audience and do it professionally. So anyways, just wanted to preface the show to let you know uh, how excited I was about speaking with Zoe and give you a bit more of her background. She has a really great Substack that posts occasionally called um, Musings of a Wandering Mind. It's zoeskamen.substack.com. And I've talked long enough, so enjoy this conversation uh, where we dig into the creator economy and how brands are seeing uh, that, that creator space today. Thanks. All right. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode. I'm here with Zoe Skamen, who is a strategist. Zoe, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, I'm really excited to chat with you because I've been loving your your Substack, which is Musings of a a Wandering Mind, and I'll uh, link that up, of course, in the show notes. I also found you the way that I think a lot of people have found your work recently through a talk that you gave on the future of business models that was really fascinating. And I think we're gonna dive into some of that uh, together here today. But uh, you know, from my understanding, you, you help brands navigate uh, their strategy as it relates to product development and building communities around those products. And I thought a fun place to start would be just to sort of understand a bit about like what that work looks like and also how you found yourself know, being a strategist uh, in that type of role. Um, So I I was just curious about that. And so, yeah, what, how did you find yourself in this role and and what does that work look like for you day to day? I think it's been a series of happy accidents in terms of where I've ended up. And I started out in advertising, so advertising strategy, and, and I didn't know what strategy was. So I was working at an agency in Sydney at the time, and I was a, an account person, so a suit. And I was pulled to one side, and they basically said, you're terrible at this. Um, everyone's complaining about you. You're a crap manager. You don't know what you're doing. And I was really young, and I had a visa attached to the agency. And I said, okay, well, put me wherever you think I would work best. I just want to keep my visa. And they said, we think you're a strategist. And I said, well, I have no idea what that is, but cool, whatever, I don't mind. And so that's kind of where it all started. And I think for me, 
strategy has evolved massively over time. So I see it as problem solving and the ability to take a sort of complex or challenging idea or question and figure out a path forwards. And so that might look like advertising strategy. So it might look at, you know, how do come up with a creative idea to shift more toilet roll for example um, and then I started uh, moving in lots of different directions so I worked at Australia's first social media agency when that started although it was a bit ahead of its time so there wasn't a huge amount of money in that uh, I worked with Coca-Cola and we did share a coke which is the names on cans campaign that went all over the world um, and then I started moving into management consultancy and trying to understand how strategy could navigate through an organization because there's so much bureaucracy and so much risk aversion and so that was another form of strategy that i got into and just bit by bit i've sort of followed this kind of weird you know basically rambling path um more and more in different directions so entertainment product design innovation strategy uh how to actually undo hierarchies and bureaucracy to get more interesting things through an organization and I've at the moment found myself more in the sort of entertainment and creator economy space, which I just find fascinating. And it's mainly that I see something shiny and I just kind of go, well, that looks interesting. I'll go and learn more about that. And once I feel I've absorbed it, I'll go and do something else. But I see strategy as this kind of all uh, you know, encompassing way of being and thinking. And I think that you can add as many strings to your bow as you wish. Yeah, I, I love that. Uh, and it's it's amazing that it kind of just clicked for you once you were the, in the initial, I guess, shame of, of what was being uh, shared with, with your boss or whatever. And then you found this thing that, that really, it sounds like fits your personality, kind of chasing the, the shiny object, like you said. And so what, it sounds like this has changed a bit over time, but what does that output typically look like? You know, from what you were sharing, it sounded to me like the thing that you're really trying to do is turn some lights on you know, in, in somebody's head about what's possible within the organization or within, you know, this product line is, is that essentially what you're trying to do is you're trying to gather um, essentially a story or some type of perspective that is currently non-existent within an organization and sharing that in a way that it, it gets them excited and, and interested in and kind of pushes that forward? Or do you see strategy as being way more um, direct and hands-on in terms of, you know, this is what the campaign should look like this is how you should position it. Here's the copy, here's design direction. Um, I'm just trying to get a sense of how high level versus um, you know, direct and hands-on it is. It's definitely the former for me. So I do spend a lot of time with clients, helping them to bring the outside in. So a lot of the time, I think the answer is, is there, kind of, within the organization. But a lot of organizations function like conveyor belts. They just need to get their job done. They need to make sure that they're delivering on all of the metrics that they've signed up for. And they just need to keep the business moving. And so when they're doing that, they keep their heads down and they don't necessarily look up or out to see what's happening in the wider world around them or to see what's happening in other categories or to keep up with trends. And so a lot of the time I will go into an organization and I have that ability to bring the outside in, to be able to sort of traverse what's happening from an economic, you know, a cultural, a design, a fashion, a music perspective or gaming, for example, 
and to say, you know, here's what's happening out there. Here's how it's relevant to your organization in a number of different ways. And then here are some initial thoughts in terms of actually how we can start to solve some of the challenges that we have in front of us. And every organization is different in terms of what their challenges are. And some of them might be on a burning platform and thinking, you know, shit, we need to get our stuff together. Otherwise, we're going to be out of business in 12 months. Others might be looking at a, a broader trajectory of where they want to go next in the next sort of two to three to five years. And others still might want to pivot in a completely different direction because their category is shrinking or they've got uh, to the point that they've kind of met a surplus in that category and they need to look elsewhere for growth. So it's always a different type of challenge, but I always start by opening up their eyes to what the potential is out there and what some of the nascent trends are, and then making that as relevant to them as possible. And then from there, you know, it's a wide ranging discussion in terms of, you know, do we want to prioritize some of these ideas? Do we want to put task forces together? And then I can guide that process however it needs to be done. Right. That, that makes a ton of sense. And I love what you said about um, the answers typically there within the organization. It's just, it, it, has to be grown almost in a certain sense. It needs to be uncovered. And I, that's been my experience as well. And just working with founders or, or companies is usually they have really great insights. Um, but I think it sounds like you come in and you sort of um, free them up to explore those as well as paving a little bit of the path, you know, forward in the future um, so that they can see that. And then it shifts into, okay, now how do you do this as an organization? Uh, and like actually, you know, move, move forward with that. And it also makes sense if there's varying degrees of pressure, like you said, if the, if the platform's burning down, they need to shift quickly. They're probably a little bit uh, capable. They're capable of moving faster. Um, and so how, how do you do your own uh, research, whether it's coming up for a talk or uh, working, you know, as a strategist, are you, um, you know, are you reading a lot of like studies? Are you just consuming, a lot of content because you're, you know, obsessing over it. Like, let's say it's the creator economy, you know, are you just becoming a fan and really diving in and, um, or is it a little bit more like, I don't want to say scientific, but is it, I suppose, study or research based? What is, what is your process for coming up with um, either a strategy or a new talk that you're about to give? I am a big fan of going down rabbit holes. So I will get onto Google and I can spend, you know, six, eight, 10 hours uh, researching something. And I don't tend to read white papers or any kind of scientific studies. And the reason I don't is because I actually think that when you're looking at nascent trends, what you're really looking for is you're looking for really small signals that are happening. And then you're trying to knit those signals together to then start to come up with potentially a pattern. And then you can see potentially where that pattern's going to go. So that's where you know my interest in the creator economy started. Um, when I saw Connie Chan's talk uh, many years ago, I think uh, on where that was potentially going in China, and then I started connecting the dots was what was happening in the world of music, what was happening in the world of influencers, how they were starting to monetize themselves because of all the algorithmic changes on the social platforms were actually stopping them from being able to have a reliable source of community and some support of uh, commercialization as well. So you just start to see these pieces come together. And then, you know, before you know it, it's the sum of the parts and you've got a gigantic trend on your hands. And in terms of what I read on a regular basis, I mean, I have signed up to so many newsletters, it's ridiculous. So everything right. from, you know, High Snobiety to um, Rolling Stone to Variety to Venture Beat, 
um, through to a myriad of different sub stacks as well. And every single morning I wake up and I put some time aside to then actually go through all of that stuff and make sure that my brain is kind of up to date. So I guess I've, I've trained my brain to become this ridiculous funnel and filter. And then I just start to share things that are interesting to me. And in doing so, I have the ability to actually sort of knit those things together and start to see patterns as they're emerging. Yeah, I, uh, I definitely understand the, the Substack obsession. I don't know if you're on Clubhouse, but I think that might be another good rabbit hole for you. The conversations on there have been um, pretty, pretty fast. Are you familiar with that application? The yes, I audio? am, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's had some interesting uh, conversation kind of around it, but I, I found um, there's some really good kind of deep, uh, conversations that happen on there, especially late at night. Um, I, I'd love to dive into kind of orienting ourselves to this creator economy, creator monetization. And so I thought maybe we could start by looking at kind of, you know, where we've been. And I, I know part of that has been the shift from advertising to sort of a more direct, you know, person to person monetization. But, you know, wh- where were we, let's say January this year, um, and then what do you feel like really accelerated over the last few months when it comes to yeah, creators monetizing their work or building communities around their work? I'm thinking we can just at least start by like orienting a little bit. Yeah, I think um, not necessarily in January of this year, but I think it's kind of been happening probably for the last uh, year or so. But I think in January, it was much more of a sort of traditional, I build my community. So for example, if I'm a fashion or a beauty influencer on Instagram, and I hope that I've built my community and my persona in such a way that I'm attractive to brands, and then I will essentially hope to get sponsorship from brands, and that's how I monetize myself, by giving them access to my community who trust me, and then I can basically push their products in a certain way. So that's kind of, I think, where we were in January. And I do think that was starting to shift and change. And I definitely saw a few influencers starting to hack the Instagram close friends option, where essentially they were creating these sort of smaller offshoot groups who would get special access to them or different types of content that potentially the mass wouldn't get. And they were trying to find a way to sort of monetize that off platform, maybe that's through Venmo or PayPal or something like that. But, you know, if you pay me a subscription per month, you become one of my Instagram close friends and you can get access to this content. So I almost think that was already starting to happen. I mean, Patreon was already around and it was being used by, you know, a number of different people, but it wasn't necessarily mainstream. Um, There were some authors on there. There were some journalists on there. There were definitely some adult workers on there as well. And then I think what started obviously to happen with COVID is suddenly we're all stuck at home and we are looking for escapism and connection. And one of the easiest ways to do escapism and connection is to find people on social platforms, be that Twitch, be that YouTube, be that Instagram, be that TikTok, who are entertaining or who we feel like we are you know, wanting to watch as an influencer or as someone that we just think is cool in some way that we wanna interact with. And when that was starting to happen, Um, and those audiences were exploding and the engagement was exploding, suddenly I think those those particular influences were looking at it and thinking, well, hang on a second, I'm not earning very much money from this. And, you know, what I was reading about specifically with the founder of Patreon, for example, is, you know, he was releasing his music videos on YouTube. And I think one of his videos had almost 1.5 million views at one stage, and he'd only earned $116 from YouTube's advertising. And he just thought, hang on, this is broken. 
this must be being able to be done better. And actually I need to find a way to get closer to my fans. So that's obviously why he launched Patreon. And I think a lot of people had that same thought process as their audiences were booming and the engagement was booming, but their monetization wasn't. And I think that's where the real shift started to happen. And so more and more people started to discover platforms that were already there. So, you know, when it comes to OnlyFans, when it comes to Patreon, and obviously all of the new startups that are launching in this space as well. And I think it just accelerated a trend that was probably already going to be happening, especially if you look at some of the Instagram hacks that I mentioned previously, but it's gone from zero to 60 uh, due to the fact that actually, you know, online audiences are exploding and people are much more willing to pay influencers for the content that they create these days. Yeah, it's so interesting because what you mentioned around what people are sort of buying, and I'm, I'm interested in this kind of psychology, is that you know people want the entertainment, they want the connection, they want to feel close, they want to support. You know, that's sort of, it's very different than what brands I think are typically used to selling. And obviously we're talking about individual creators now, but I kind of am wondering about, um, you've got this explosion of all these creators that are monetizing directly. Like you said, first they were hacking let's say Instagram and the close friends, but now they've got these platforms, Patreon, et cetera. And there's this whole economy swelling up where people are paying each other, you know, directly. And I'm curious about how brands are starting to see this, right? Because what, what they typically are selling is not um, personal individual connection, unless they're a platform, right? But they're not selling personal individual connection. They're not selling they're typically not always selling entertainment. They're maybe using entertainment to sell their other products. So I guess I'm curious, how, how has it been speaking with brands as they witness sort of this explosion of this other part of the economy where it's much more peer-to-peer and what's being bought and sold is way less tangible than let's say like a physical product. And um, I don't know if you, get, you understand what I'm getting at there, but I'm curious how brands like see the creator economy because I'm sure they want a piece of that pie in a certain sense, right? And I know there's influencers and all that, but um, it, it almost feels like this format for how people are connecting and paying each other um, for their creative work or whatever, you know, whatever it might be, it almost feels like it's kind of out of reach for a brand. Like it's almost a different economy. Am I right in how I'm thinking about that? Yeah, I think a lot of brands don't really see what's happening. I think a lot of them have got their heads in the sand. And I think a lot of them are also just thinking that they'll carry on as normal when it comes to engaging with influencers. Only now the influencers have got their communities, you know, on lock in terms of, you know, they're private, they're paying them directly, but the brands are probably still thinking, it's fine, I can get into that space via the influencer and therefore I can access the community that way. And I'm not sure that's the case. And what I think is actually more interesting is the fact that we've got a whole new set of consumers, um, I I hate the word consumers, audiences, um, who are being trained in a new way of interacting with influencers, celebrities, gamers, you know, whoever it is that they're interested with. Uh, And those walls are starting to come down. So the accessibility that they have now is huge. And, you know, they can pay for additional accessibility if they want to. Um, so they can, you know, for example, pay a more passive fee and they can get additional content or some of them can pay a much higher fee and actually have, you know, one-to-one beauty tutorials over Zoom, for example, or access to someone's WhatsApp or something like that. So that accessibility is becoming normalized. And I think what's interesting is the brands don't necessarily realize that that level of accessibility is going to become an expectation. 
and that level of collaboration and you know feeling like an insider and feeling like you're part of something special is going to become something that people are going to start demanding from them too and it's such a huge opportunity should they wish to actually unlock that and start to explore it but as I said, I think the majority of them are still seeing this as just an evolution of influencer marketing, as opposed to a brand new potential strategy that they should and could be adopting. And do you think that strategy is actually a, a new uh, business model itself? Uh, meaning that as brands wake up, realize that people are seeking this more one-to-one connection, maybe through learning or access or you know, uh, some type of insider um, community, like, is this a new business model for these brands that they can now explore? Or do you think that they can explore the same value propositions uh, to, I, I suppose, build more sales for their existing product line? I think it's a bit of both. So I don't necessarily think it's a brand new business model that's going to usurp the current business model. I think it's a diversification of actually how they could make money. So if you think about the majority of brands at the moment, they make their money on product or service sales. But a lot of them could be thinking about subscription services. A lot of them could be thinking about, you know, drop culture and potentially being part of a community where you get you know, pay for preview, for example. And actually a lot of them are potentially missing a trick when it comes to linear commerce, which is becoming more and more popular when it comes to, you know, creators, but also, you know, certain brands within the entertainment space as well. So it's about building an audience first, mining them for sort of insights by sort of letting them get on with it, letting them have conversations and then creating products and services based on the needs that they have bubbled up in that community and then finding a way to collaborate with them and selling it back to them. So there's a couple of brands who have started testing that a little bit, but it's very, very small. Um, you know, Reebok is one of them, for example, with first pitch, and it's a very basic version of it. So they're saying it's a sustainability push, but actually I think it could be more of a community linear commerce push. And essentially what that is, is they are putting out a shoe and they're saying, here's this design shoe. If less than 500 people, i.e. less than 500 of you say that you are committed to buying the shoe, we're not gonna make it. And so they see it as sustainability. I see it as a kind of community choice and decision-making when it comes to what you commercialize and what you don't. And there's so much potential for what that could then turn into. You know, there's a Parisian beauty brand called Need, uh, which is actually asking the community members to come up with ideas for new skincare and beauty products. And then they've embedded this kind of Kickstarter, Reddit-style upvoting on their website. And actually, if your beauty product gets enough upvotes, and they put that into research and development, they will actually create that product and you will get a kickback from it. And actually it's been already been voted for by the community that they're interested, they're engaged with it. And so as and when it's ready to be sold, you've got a ready-made audience to sell that back to. So that kind of thing I think could be really interesting and opening up that idea of collaboration and feedback loops and really engaging with your community's needs in terms of the products and services that they want you to create as opposed to the current process, which is so black box and actually just kind of, you know, releasing anything into the wild. And it's not necessarily saying that we want to, you know, democratize creativity and take that creativity away from the brands because that's still really important. It just means that we're opening up a whole new set of feedback loops and, you know, unlocking some potentially fantastic ideas that we haven't really heard before because as much as we love to call Facebook and Instagram communities, they're not, you know, they're still very much broadcast channels. We don't have those feedback loops. And I think that's where the real opportunity could be. I think what you're saying is uh, so important because I think this is the, this is a thesis for 
I think both the creators and the brands about how to move forward and how to do product development um, in, in the new world, like in the world that we have today with all the social connection, all the new technology platforms, and you know how, how much choice I think we also have as consumers just between brands and, and navigating different communities you know, around them. And so I just really wanna kind of highlight this and I'm gonna to try to share back how, how I'm hearing what you're saying because I think this is, this is like a huge idea, which is if you're a creator or if you're a brand and you are thinking about doing product development, instead of being in a silo and thinking that you're gonna be able to sort of create um, you know, the, perfect, the perfect pitch and the perfect product, you know, from scratch on your own, I think what you're saying is if you can instead build this sort of uh, scene or platform or communal space where experimentation can happen, you know, whether you're a creator experimenting um, on some new ways of monetizing, like, you know, individual one-on-one calls or, you know, whatever other type of channel you might open up, or you're a brand and you're experimenting with new product development like Reebok, like you're saying with a sustainable shoe, the idea is really create this sandbox or sort of scene that's communal. You can work with different fun incentives, like you're saying, whether it's like the Kickstarter voting or you know participation or feedback or whatever it might be. And product development now is all about how can I experiment on something that both delights the people who are there, but also involves them in some capacity in, in the production. And, and like you're saying, this doesn't have to be 100% of product development. But am I right in thinking that like that is that's sort of the thesis that you're outlining here is, you know, look, you don't have to do it the way you've been doing it. Instead, you know, feed feed the the sort of hive community with experiments and then and then optimize and scale and then go through your product development cycle. Am, am I kind of on target with that? Absolutely. And I think that a misconception that is going to come from this kind of conversation and from these kind of ideas is that I think a lot of brands will poo poo it and kind of go, no, we're not doing that. That's crowdsourcing. And we're going to end up with something shit. And it's completely different from crowdsourcing. I mean, we've tried that. It's not a great plan. You know, you're putting the idea out to the masses and you're saying, give us some feedback. And the majority of the feedback is going to be crap and you can't action it. What's different in terms of this, when it comes to community nurturing, you know, the people that you have within there so that they are really engaged, really interested, um, and actually really wanting to make valuable contribution is that you're cherry picking, for example, a sort of top tier or at least a sort of spread bet of really engaged people who genuinely care about your product and actually might have talent of their own, be it design, be it you know, creativity in some capacity. And those are the kind of contributions that you really want. Um, and that's where you know, the richness lies, definitely. And you know, I think there's, there's a huge potential in that. And you know, one of the most interesting ones that I think that I'm gonna be keeping an eye on is Lego World Builder. So, you know, from a Lego perspective, what they were seeing is on platforms like Wattpad, which is a huge uh, self-publishing platform, people were writing stories about Lego Ninja and, you know, fan fiction, for example, and they were getting huge amounts of audiences. And Lego were kind of going, well, hang on a second, why is that happening over there? And it's not happening on a platform that we own and we can't really do anything with it. And obviously, when it comes to the entertainment industry, it's all about IP and additional offshoot stories at the moment, which you can then turn into TV series, YouTube content, merchandise, rides, for example, if you've got Lego World, there's a huge amount of opportunity. And so what they're doing with Lego World Build 
sector is they've created a platform where they're inviting those top contributors, those really interested, valuable, creative fans to write IP and to submit ideas to Lego. And then again, if your idea gets upvoted and Lego invest in it, you get a kickback from that. And from there, you know, they've got new IP, new stories that they can spin out into brand new brand worlds and product worlds. And that's what's interesting. And that is a fundamentally different idea than crowdsourcing, which we've seen done before. And, you know, usually it's done badly because the quality is lower. But what you're thinking about here is a smaller group of really high quality contributors from your community whose you know, feedback could be incredibly valuable moving forward. And that's why it's interesting when you look at what's happening with the creators and the influencers and how they're tiering those different levels of access and community. And you know, the super fans and the ones that are super engaged are paying more and they're paying more for access. So what does that look like? if you start to tip that into you know looking at product co-collaboration and you know ideas and insights but from a brand perspective yeah that's that's super interesting so on one hand there's sort of this like unbundling of the firm a little bit and i know that's a different rabbit hole and is is not going to be completely accurate but you know you're bringing in these other people on a basis where they are compensated who are sort of your your target market and but also have skills to provide to help with product development, like in the Lego case. And I think that's a really interesting conversation in itself. Um, and I, I want to bring it to creators now, which you were just doing, which is that same process you're saying is mirrored now exactly for a creator. So whether you're a brand or a creator, it's no different. You're still creating this tiered access. You can do collaboration or, pro- or co-product development, whatever you want to call it. Um, and so one thing I'm trying to get a better sense of is and I think we can stick in the creator world now. And, and I, I kind of like the idea of these brands being a little bit stuck in the sand and the creators really accelerating <laughs> these opportunities yes. because they have so much, there's so much like to be empowered by today. Um, so I'm curious to just dig in a little bit more to how that looks like. You know, I'm wondering about, I guess you'd call it maybe the portfolio, let's say of products for a creator. So some creators, they might um, jump on a platform like a, let's say a Patreon and that's sort of what they do, right? Like, let's say you're a podcast or something. You use Patreon. You maybe you can, you know, do really well there. I'm curious about creators that are that are being a bit more cross-platform and building a bit more of like a, I'd say like a portfolio or a variety of services and and paths to monetization. Um, because I think it sounds like there's some upside if your audience can buy from you in this variety of ways. But I also feel like you could start spreading people pretty thin, right? If you're jumping platforms, if it's like, you know, so I guess I wonder how you think about a creator building a larger, let's say product line or portfolio um, and like what the path forward is to do something like that. I think the most important path forward is prioritization and iteration. So not trying to do all of the things at once um, and instead you know, actually spending the time, as I said, getting to know your community and getting to know what you think they might be interested in. And then, you know, launching a, you know, one product set from there and then looking at potentially where you want to go after that. Um, And I've worked with quite a few celebrities over the last couple of years. And I, I think it's a kind of similar process. So what I tend to do with the celebrities that I work with is I try and figure out 
what is your kind of cultural legacy that you want to create? What do you want to be known for? Um, and some of them, you know, could spread across a number of different areas like entertainment, gaming, music, fashion, you know, for example, like a Travis Scott. Um, and where you want to get to is an idea of the lens that you have on the world and, you know, actually what you want to sort of bring to it and what you want to be known for. And then once you have that, you then have the ability to start thinking about how that's going to branch out into different categories, different products, different services built on your lens, but also your community needs as well. And I think it's just, as I said, it's baby steps. And I don't necessarily think that it's going to be difficult to port your audience from one platform to another. I mean, yes, for example, if you've built a gigantic following on TikTok and you're asking them all to move over to Instagram, that's different. But if you've got one central platform which serves as your kind of community hub, for example, where the majority of your content goes, where the majority of your community engagement happens. If you're then saying to them, you know, hey, I've just started an e-com site, um, you know, and I'm selling some, you know, co-collaborated merchandise, for example, you guys just need to hop over here and buy it. I don't think that's necessarily going to be a challenging thing. Um, and again, you know, if you're looking at actually building out those kind of things, I think TikTok is starting to really, and that's just an example of TikTok, they're starting to build in, you know, create a monetization tool. So for example, the partnership with Teespring and merchandising, and I think Patreon are looking at bringing on a hell of a lot of new tools as well, when it comes to fulfillment, for example, when it comes to, you know, selling actually products and services as well. And so I think as the tools start to unfold, what will potentially happen is some of them might get bundled. There might be a kind of business in a box that you can potentially buy that actually serves a number of different purposes. So from your hub where you've got your entertainment content, if that's what you're doing, through to potentially your own e-com site. So there might be, for example, in the future, some sort of um, Shopify Patreon uh, partnership that comes to the fore. But I do think a lot of those links are going to start coming together because what we're seeing at the moment is a huge fragmentation of all of these different tools and all these different platforms that creators can use. And I think the next evolution of that is gonna be a bunch of them coming together to actually tick a bunch of different boxes. And from a creator perspective, as I said, I think just start with your hub and then move out slowly from there, but do so with a way that you've got a very clear lens on what it is that you want to do um, and what potentially you think is exciting for you and for your community. Yeah, just to kind of trust your gut, but also understand what the broader kind of uh, message is that you're you're looking to promote across whatever service you open up. Um, I'm so I'm curious about like bundling a little bit because, and I'd be curious what your recommendation would be for let's say a creator. Um, I know that with like let's say esports or YouTubers, they're they're kind of coming together into you know these squads or whatever. To I, I think it kind of helps build right this like this broader fan base um, because the stories can interweave and there's cross promotion. Uh, I'm curious about like an individual creator, what you see the benefits are of, I suppose in a way bundling your content in a certain sense or your brand um, together into some larger brand or whether you think the path forward is actually um, more selective in collaboration, which is more, I wanna say like finite in terms of commitment um, and, you know, just, I, I guess as far as just building, building your brand and building, um, I suppose even the monetization side, I'm sure there's no right answer there, but I guess I'm curious how you think about that bundling aspect versus staying solo, but still doing collaborations and keeping, you know, a strong point of view. I think it totally depends on your fan base. And I think it depends on, you know, the area that you're in. 
Um, I mean, for example, in terms of, you know, bundling and exploring lots and lots of different types of, of content and, you know, spreading yourself out, you can't look much further than what's happening with FaZe Clan. Um, you know, and what they've been doing. So they started off by basically doing trick shot videos um, on YouTube, and that's what made them famous. And then they started obviously you know, looking at a number of different members of their esports team. Each of them have their own individual brands, but also the FaceCan Collective. You know, they're making money from Twitch streaming. They're making money from merchandise. They've just done a studio deal where they're actually doing, you know, a horror movie, for example, that's coming out with one of them starring in it. Um, you know, they're looking at actually franchising phase and looking at different esports teams around the world as well. Uh, there's a huge amount happening for them. And it's almost like they're this kind of cultural juggernaut and there's no category that they can't touch. And I think that's really interesting because, again, they've got that really clear cultural lens on what they're all about. And I think for, a, for an individual creator who's, who's starting out in this space, again, I would look at your lens and then I would look at a bunch of different experiments because you don't know necessarily what's going to work and what's not going to work. And I think you need to keep it small, you need to keep it lean, you need to keep it iterative. And so if you are going to do some sort of merch or some sort of product, I would do a short run um, you know, look at exclusivity in terms of, you know, first come, first serve, or maybe find a way to make it more interesting to your fan base or your community by doing some sort of competition or, you know, something that basically pulls them in and develops that hype. See if that actual product connects or that service connects. And if it does, you can go on to increase the supply of that. And if it doesn't, you can pivot onto something else. But I think when you're first starting out, it is a bunch of experiments and it's seeing what flies, what doesn't fly, and then essentially following that path wherever it may lead you next. Yeah, it makes, makes a ton of sense. Um, I want to be conscious of your time here. I've uh, just two more questions for you. So the first is, how, how big is this market going to be? I mean, we we've been kind of talking about uh, the shift where there's almost an economy where fans and, you know, fans are paying creators, creators are probably paying for other creators and, you know, you're buying not necessarily even always a, you know, physical product or something like that, but you're buying this access, you're buying this entertainment. Are we just at the very beginning of this in your perspective? And, you know, will there be this huge wave still of let's say micro influencers where, you know, there's just a massive amount of people who have 500 fans or a thousand fans that are paying, or, you know, they're not these, let's say, let's say big influencer celebrities. Like how big do you think that market is going to get? Um, I guess I'm kind of asking about like how long the tail is in a certain sense. I think there's huge potential. Um, and I think what we have seen to date is, you know, influencer and celebrity culture. Um, where you had to be world famous or at least nationally famous and have a gigantic footprint to be able to make any money and to be able to actually be valuable. And now I think that's flipping because when it came to brands and what they were investing in, when it came to sponsorship, they wanted a big footprint. So they wanted you know, influencers with 500,000 followers, with a million followers. And it meant that all the micro influencers were still you know, basically working hard to grow their communities and to grow that trust, but they're really struggling to monetize. And the minute the monetization flips and you've got your own fans paying you to create the content, that means that you have the ability to potentially make a really strong living 
by getting paid by, you know, a thousand fans or 2000 fans. And, you know, there's a great piece by Lee Jin when she was at um, Anderson Horowitz, who obviously coined the idea of the passion economy and has been one of the forefront um, people when it comes to where it's going with creators, etc. And, you know, she wrote a piece which was uh, a thousand true fans which I think was fantastic. And it was obviously, a, it was a take on a, a previous piece that had been done. Um, and it was just basically talking about the fact that actually, if you've just got a thousand true fans that can you know, pay you for your skills, pay you for your content, pay you for your entertainment value, you know, pay you for your expertise in some capacity, that's enough. And that's all you potentially need. But up until now, we've been lacking the tools and the infrastructure to make those connections from those micro influencers to their fan bases, because there hasn't necessarily been anything to glue them together. There's been no way to pay. There's been no way to engage or actually share that content other than on a public medium, such as an Instagram profile or a Facebook page, but that's changing. So I think the potential is gigantic. And I actually think, you know, when we look at markets like China, where this has been going for a while now, you're seeing so much of this happening in terms of, you know, micro influencers, be they authors, be they, you know, economics professors, uh, be they gamers, and they have got very, very passionate, you know, advocating fan bases who keep them afloat financially. And they don't require, you know, the input of brands because they've got the infrastructure to be able to nurture those communities and nurture the commercialization of those communities themselves. So I think this is the very, very beginning of potentially where it could go next. And I think the infrastructure has been the thing that's unlocked it. Yeah, it makes me think of, uh, there's a writer named Craig Maud. I don't know if you've heard of him before, um, but he, he supports himself through fans. He's, he's based in Japan, but he, um, he just writes about uh, taking long walks around Japan and he just takes pictures and he, he'll, he'll live stream like while he's walking for hours just around Japan and, you know, stop in tea houses. And I've always just thought his work is kind of amazing that there's you know, enough of a fan base there and, and he's put together books that he's sold. And um, I think it's just a, a good example of what you're talking about there. Um, so the last question I have is, you know, over the next, let's say 12, 18 months, I'm, I'm just curious about what you see is right on the horizon. I know we've kind of touched on some of it, so you could always, you know, bring some of those threads back into this, but you know, what, what is your sort of future vision for, you know, what, what things look like in 12, 18, you know, 24 months. I mean, that can be for brands or creators. I think one of the big things that's going to start happening, I hope, to make things easier is bundling, which is what I mentioned previously. I think at the moment, there's almost an overwhelming amount of tools and services available to service these creators and all of the different aspects that they may need to you know, support themselves and actually create their content and engage with their fans. So I, I do see bundling being a thing. Um, whether that bundling means, you know, Patreon buy a couple of the smaller companies, as an example, whether it is a, you know, cross collaboration in some capacity, maybe, you know, a platform like OnlyFans actually builds its own level of infrastructure for fulfillment and other bits and pieces as well. But I think a lot of the platforms are still very, very young. I think the, you know, the mod cons and the bells and whistles are quite basic. And I expect to see that actually start to mature quite a lot, especially when it comes to analytics and measurement frameworks, fulfillment, financials, all of that kind of stuff as well, to actually allow these people to really turn them into proper businesses. I guess it's a similar way to how Shopify are working for D2C and small e-com businesses. They are constantly expanding their suite of tools and services so that they are a one-stop shop. And I expect quite a few of the platforms for creators are probably going to do the same. 
What I would love to see is more brands actually starting to recognize this as a space that they can get into and not via the influencers, but actually opening up their own community platforms and their own collaboration processes and really listening. And as I said, I've mentioned Lego before, and I'm a huge fan of the fact that they're always on the forefront of this stuff. And I think they're pointing the way forward in terms of where it could potentially go and where it should go. So I'm hoping that, yeah, more and more brands will actually jump on this. And in the meantime, the creators will have tools and services that are going to mature fast to be able to help them to capitalize on this trend and on this growth potential. Yeah, exciting. Who is going to be the Shopify for creators? I think that's a really interesting uh, question. Well, Zoe, thank you so much for, for sharing your wisdom here and your time. Um, like I said earlier, you've got a great Substack, uh, Musing, Musings of a Wandering Mind, um, which I'll, I'll link. Uh, if there's anything else that you'd like to share, promote or whatever, you know, feel free. I'd love to link up that business model innovation video as well, because that's what first kind of turned me on to your work. Um, but yeah, do you have anything else you'd like to share or promote? No, I don't think so. I think the best place if anyone wants to find me and follow me is probably Twitter. So I'm just at Zoe Skamen. Um, I am fairly prolific, so I might accidentally spam you with all of the stuff that comes out of my brain. Um, but I think that that is where I just start sharing, as I said, right at the very beginning, those signals and those small pieces that then start to add up to bigger patterns. So if you want to find me there, then feel free. Amazing. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. That is it for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. And as always, if I can be of any help, feel free to reach out. My email is david, D-A-V-I-D, at death2stock.com, D-E-A-T-H-T-O-S-T-O-C-K.com. You can also find my personal site at davidsherry.me. Would love to chat with you. If you found this valuable, please uh, review, subscribe. That means a ton to me. And it just gives me the good vibe to keep going. So I'd really appreciate that as well. And that's it. We'll be back again soon.